I like you, Mary. I like you a lot. <laughs> I want to ask you a question, straight out, flat out. I want you to give me the honest answer. What do you think the chances are of a guy like you and a girl like me ending up together? Well, Lloyd, that's difficult to say. We really don't hit me with it. Just give it to me straight. I came a long way just to see you, Mary. Just least you can do is level with me. What are my chances? Not good. You mean not good like one out of a hundred? I'd say more like one out of a million. So you're telling me there's a chance. tell you what, it is so good to be with you. My name is Danny Householder. I'm the campus pastor here at Hope Ames. And I tell you what, would you turn to the person next to you and just say, I'm so glad you're here. We mean it when we say it. We don't believe it's any accident you're here, that we've been praying for you. Uh, hello to our friends who are on the floor. Hello to our friends who are in the balcony. I think my wife is sitting in the balcony tonight. Where are you? I need you. Where are you? Oh, hey, Abby. Everybody say hi, Abby. I don't know why I had to do that, but, you know, I just did. Anyway, we've also got some friends who are tuning in with us through uh, Facebook Live, and they're watching on the uh, on the live stream to Facebook, of course, Facebook Live. And if you're on the floor, would you turn around, look at that camera back there, and say, what's up, Iowa City, on the count of three. One, two, three. What's up, Iowa City? We're so darn glad that we get to worship together. Hey, we've been going through a series. It's called God in Mental Health. Pretty awesome series, right? You guys have been enjoying this. It's good. We've been having a group that's been meeting on Sundays. We're so grateful for them who've gotten together, just had this honest conversation and discussion about what it means to be walking in faith, but also sometimes walking through mental health struggles or walking alongside of someone in mental health struggles. And I feel like we've grown a lot. Um, And tonight is the conclusion of our God and Mental Health series. And there is a reason why I talked, why I showed you guys that, that opening clip tonight, because in the deeply theological film called Dumb and Dumber, Lloyd Christmas is filled with hope. He's filled with hope, even though it's kind of ridiculous, right? He is told there is a one in a million chance that he has a shot at love with this woman that he is head over heels for. One in a million, but that's enough for him. It's amazing. Lloyd Christmas finds himself in a position where it seems like it's impossible for him to have success, but even then, he's filled with hope. Like, it's enough for him. Have you ever been in an even-then situation? An even-then situation is when it feels like your back's against the wall, but there's something inside of you that says, well, even then, I, I believe that there's something good that could come out of this. Tonight, we're just asking that question, simply there. Even then? God, even then, even then, even when I'm struggling, even when I'm hurting, even when someone that I care about is dealing with mental illness, even then, is there hope? I've got good news for you. The Bible tells us that, yes, there is hope. Um, and I want to tell you that it's very important to be holding on to hope. This came from a uh, journal report. This comes from a doctor named Dale Archer. He's also a licensed psychiatrist. He's got his MD. And he said, if I could find a way to package and dispense hope, 
I would have a pill more powerful than any medication on the market. Hope is often the only thing between a person and the abyss. If a person has hope, they can recover from anything. No matter what wall they're backed up against, if they have hope, there's something there. Now, I also want to note that this is a licensed psychiatrist who sits down in conversations with people and, uh, and helps them through therapy and oftentimes would prescribe people to medication. So it's not to dismiss the significance of therapy, of counseling, or medication, but it is sort of hinting at the fact that maybe there's something even deeper than the way that the neurons in our brain uh, communicate with one another. And in fact, sometimes when we seek out our options in dealing with our mental health, we're seeking out the things that are going to bring us back to a place of hope. A place of having hope. I mean, just read it right there. I mean, it, it's true. And uh, the University of Houston came out with a study in 2020 where they wrote how the, the greatest determining factor, the greatest predictor in a patient's recovery was whether or not they had hope. And they wrote about how if somebody doesn't have hope, it hurts their chances. What is it about hope? Have you ever had hope in your life? The even-then moments? The, th- the times where it feels like you've ran out of opportunities, but maybe, just maybe, there's a chance coming your way? When I was a kid, I wanted to be the starting point guard for the Chicago Bulls. And in case you didn't know, it didn't work out. Like, I still believe when I grow up, maybe it'll happen. But it hasn't yet. Um, and for Christmas, uh, my wife and I, we, like, gifted each other with a Nintendo Switch, and uh, I don't know why, but we just did. And, and like a week into having that Nintendo Switch, I realized that I, I really bought this for Abby because I wanted it. You know what I mean? And there's a game that I found called NBA 2K. Anybody here play NBA 2K? Maybe there's a couple people, right? And in NBA 2K, there's a feature in there called My Career. And I started looking into this. I'm like, My Career? What is this? Mind you, I haven't gamed since I was probably 11. We're talking 2003. Things have gone way off the wire since then. Anyway, so I go into this my career mode, and I'm like, wait, I could create myself? Oh my goodness, so I create myself and make myself six foot seven and 210 pounds. And what? And it's not realistic, you know? And so, and so I create myself, and then I like have this high school career, right? And depending on how well you play in the high school career in this game, as you're living vicariously through a children's game, you could potentially have the opportunity to get a scholarship in the game to one of these incredible elite schools. And as I am venturing through my high school career as a basketball player, hoping to one day become the starting point guard for the Chicago Bulls, like, it wasn't working out. And I just kept on messing it up. I kept on messing up. I'm like, no, like, there's got to be another chance. And so there's that restart button. So you hit restart. You restart the entire career. You make yourself all over again. Then you start playing these games all over again. And you go through the story and all this history. And there was one time where Abby finally comes out. She goes, Danny, again? Again? I'm like, Abby, there's a chance for me. There's hope for me. I could truly get a scholarship to the University of Florida and be a starting point guard and eventually play for the Chicago Bulls if I just play this game enough. There's a chance just keep on fighting for it. Keep on restarting. Keep on going. Keep on restarting. Keep on going. And ladies and gentlemen, about three weeks later, I got the scholarship. I became the number one pick in the NBA draft. And I'm the starting point guard for the Chicago Bulls. And I've only played 78 games since. I am averaging 12.2 points a game, 3.4 assists, and five rebounds. Yeah, baby. There's always hope. 
Even when it didn't seem like there was hope, there was still hope. Even then, at that moment of despair, when Abby came out and said, my husband is, is, is just absolutely shameful, right? There was hope. I had it, and I held on, and sure enough, it came through. The Bible does promise us that there is hope for us to hold on to. It says this in Hebrews chapter 6. It says, this hope, this hope that we have is a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. It leads us through the curtain into God's inner sanctuary. The hope that we have is unique. A lot of times we say, I have hope or I've lost hope. As if hope is something that we could produce. The hope that God has for us is not something we could produce. Instead, it is something that's given to us. And it's something that is committed to us. It's something that's tethered to us. It's something that's anchored to us. And it goes to places that we couldn't even dream of going on our own. Even when... Our backs up are against the wall. And so we could say, even then, even then there's hope. Because that anchor is committed to us. And so when it goes somewhere new, we get to go to those new places too. You have hope. Hope is not something you can lose. Because it's not something you can produce. It's something that's given to you and something that will not leave you. There's another passage about hope here on the next slide. I'd like you to check this out. This is from the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, verse 23. It says, Let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope we affirm that we affirm, for God can be trusted to keep his promise. In order for God to be God, God has to be consistent. So for God to make a promise means that it happens. Sometimes God makes promises that we're not really ready for. Sometimes we try to get God to promise something that God never promised. But the promises that God does make, God sticks to those promises. And that's why, even when your back is against the wall, you could say, even then. Even then. Even then I would have hope. So one of the reasons why I did not grow up to be a starting point guard for the Chicago Bulls is because when I was in high school, I I went out for the wrestling team. And, I mean, I just don't know why people are shocked when they find out that I was a wrestler. I mean, do I not look like a wrestler? I don't understand, you know. I was the kid who wore the headgear in practice every single day because I just refused to have my precious ears touched. But uh, I tell you what, I, I, I wasn't great at wrestling, right, at all. Like, let's just, I'll just name it for you. But we had about half of our team that was really good. And then the other half of our team, like, we, we weren't awesome. But we had coaches who were really gifted at coaching, And so they would find ways to help us reach our potential, whatever it was. And one of the ways that they would do that is they would have these mantras, right? So they'd have these quotes and these sayings. And one of the quotes that they came up with when I was on the team is they came up with an even-then mindset. It was an even-then mindset. And it was, even when your shoulders are so close to the mat and you're about to get pinned. In case you don't know, if you're in wrestling and you're on your back and your shoulder's about to hit the mat... Um, and then they both touch the mat, you lost, you're pinned. And I know that because I learned from experience how to lose wrestling matches. But they said, even when you are so close to losing, even when you're down by 10 points, even when all hope seems lost, even then, even then, you could turn this around. And you know, it's nice to talk about hope, but have you ever seen hope in action? Have you ever seen when it actually like works? So my junior year, we're, uh, we're at Valley High School. Any Valley Tigers? 
yay, Valley Tigers, whatever, I'm a warrior, walk he! I, okay, I, I don't actually still live in high school, I promise. But, uh, but you know, I mean, it's fun, you know, and so I went to Waukee, we're at Valley, and Valley at the time had this wrestler who was the top-ranked wrestler in his weight class. And we had a guy who was wrestling against him, who was good, but definitely not a top-ranked wrestler. And in the second period, he's down by 10 points. He's close to being simply kicked out of the match because he's about to be down by so many points. And then at one point, he's on his back. He's about to lose. And one of our assistant coaches shouts out, Hey, Colin! Even then! And it's like something overcame him. He's like, it's this fire in his eyes. And it's funny when, like, the little... This was, like, I think, like, the 112 weight class. So it's, like, this fiery, like, tiny little battery. Like, die! You know, they're ready to go. I have so much respect for the smaller weight class guys. I and mean, they just pound, you know, they go for it. So it's just something comes over him and... All of a sudden, he pulls this, like, reversal that we had never seen before. And then he finds a way to get his opponent into, uh, like, a a cradle position. And then he rocks him back. And all of a sudden, this top-ranked wrestler in the state gets pinned by our guy. And he stands up. He's like, even then! Oh, my goodness, it happened. The hope happened. And I'm sitting there on the sideline. I'm so, like, motivated, ready to go. And they get to my weight class, and I go out there, and I'm like, even then! And I take a dive at my top-ranked wrestling opponent, his ankles, and he rolls me on my back, and he pins me. And it wasn't great. Like I, like I said, it didn't always go so well for me. I was honestly disappointed when I went out for the wrestling team, and I found out it wasn't, like, professional wrestling. Like, I would always want to show up in a Speedo and a cape, you know? They'd call me the bullfighter. I'd run around the mat and be like, Toro! You know. Didn't work out like that. I wasn't a hero on the mat at all. I lost a lot. It's very humbling for me to talk about. And I remember specifically after that match, it was very embarrassing because I, I went for something I absolutely should not have gone for. Like, and in that match, it didn't feel like there was any hope for me. And the worst part is when you're... When you lose your match, you know, you have to stand, like, face-to-face with your opponent, and they look at you, and they're like, I'm stronger than you, and better than you, and your family doesn't care about you, you know, and stuff like that, and you believe them. And you have to shake their hand. Not all of that happens. And then they lift the hand of your opponent, and everybody in the gym is watching, and you're just... You know, and so after this particular match, I just take that long walk back to the locker room. I sit on the bench, and I'm just alone. I'm like, man, even then, huh? Even then. I feel like a fraud. I feel, I feel very weak. I feel very embarrassed. It felt like hope was lost for me. I didn't want to show my face in that gym again until the meet was over. Man, you ever feel like that? Because I know that there's two sides to this coin, right? Like, I hope that there are some of you in this room who, like, had that even-then moment, and you flipped it over, right? And you won. And it's awesome. But I also know that some of us are sitting in a locker room by ourselves on the bench, totally discouraged. Even then? Even then, is there hope for me? The Bible's honest about the reality, right? The reality of our weakness. Today's the day that we remember that. Today is Ash Wednesday. If you're not familiar with that, in the church there's a holiday that's been celebrated for years and years and years, and it's called Ash Wednesday. And Ash Wednesday is the day 
when reality meets hope. Reality tells us that everything in this world is finite. That everything in existence is finite. But hope has something to say about that. And Ash Wednesday is the day when reality meets hope. Ash Wednesday is the day when death meets life. Ash Wednesday is the day when weakness is uplifted by eternal strength. The Bible in Genesis chapter 3, toward the very beginning, one of the oldest verses in the entire Bible, it says this, For you are made from dust, and to dust you will return. That's a harsh reality, right? And it's true. It's true. There's that band Kansas. They sang a long time ago, All we are is dust in the wind. It's true. Like our bodies, it's just a bunch of atoms that are held together for as long as we have breath. I heard that 99% of our physical bodies are made up of six elements. We're just just dust. That can be kind of discouraging. What does that lead us to? Like I know, we've all sat through talks. We've all had somebody sit across from us and tell us, you're dust. Maybe more bluntly, you're a sinner. You're imperfect. You're a screw-up. You can't do anything right. You're way more messed up than you ever knew. Where has that gotten any of us? I was reading this week about imposter, imposter syndrome. Anybody here ever heard of imposter syndrome? Imposter syndrome can be defined as um, a deeply painful feeling that the person people perceive you to be isn't real. Here's how it happens in action. You get a task, right? Or maybe, maybe you have a label and you have to live up to it. And it freaks you out. You get anxious. So you can respond in one of two ways. You, you either procrastinate <laughs> or you overanalyze everything. And if it somehow ends up going well, you believe, well, it was either just luck or I barely got by. And then someone comes along and they say, hey, nice job. And you say, if you only knew me, if you only knew the truth. And then that next task comes your way or that next label comes your way and you're even more anxious about it. You're even more nervous about it because you know that last time you didn't feel like you really did anything. The International, uh, the International Journal of Behavior Science came out with a study a few years ago that said 70% of people are living with imposter, imposter syndrome. 70% of people believe that the way people perceive them isn't real. 70% of people believe they're a fake. 70% of people believe they're a phony. 70% of people believe that anything they ever accomplish in this world doesn't matter because you know who you are underneath and it doesn't match any accolade that I've pretended to hold up. 70% of us believe that. Do we really need someone to stand up in front of us again and say, you're so much more messed up than you ever knew? I get it. There's a certain level of guilt that is healthy to have in our life. If someone walks around and says, I don't have any guilt whatsoever, they're really hard to be around. Because nobody's perfect. It's true. 
But somewhere along the line, we get driven into shame. And guilt is different from shame. Guilt is this healthy understanding of knowing sometimes I do bad things. But shame is an unhealthy drowning pool where we believe I'm bad. I am the bad things that I do. I've become them and I'm no longer worthy of love. Even then, is there hope for me even then? You know, we feel like we have to keep up the, like we hate imposter syndrome, but we feel like we have to keep up the imposter syndrome because what if someone found out? Have you ever been busted? Have you ever been found out? Ash Wednesday is the start of the season of Lent, and Lent is the season that goes into Easter. And as we go through these uh, several weeks, 40 days that lead up to Easter, we remember the things that make us miss out on life, the life that God wanted for us to have. We remember the things that make us miss out on God. And so sometimes, for people, for Christians, they will give something up for Lent. Or maybe they'll add something to their life for Lent. And something that helps them focus on God. Something that allows them not to miss God. Something that allows them not to miss the, the life that God has put in front of them. And so, one year, I wasn't necessarily super deep about it like that. Instead, I just decided, I'm just going to give up sweets. And if that's what you gave up for Lent, that's great. Because maybe that really is something that will help you focus more on God. But I got a serious sweet tooth, okay? A serious sweet tooth. And so one year, I was like, okay, I'm giving up sweets. And I'm telling everybody. Because is it Lent if you don't talk about it? You know what I mean? You know what I'm saying? Like, wait till you see what I do. But here's the problem. You tell people about it, and then you have to live up to it. Now, I have such a sweet tooth that sometimes I don't understand that sweets are not ordinary food. Sometimes I don't understand when I'm eating a sweet because I love sweets so much. And so I love chocolate milk. Chocolate milk is water to me. I hydrate off of chocolate milk. Some people think I'm hyper. Now you know. But I had told my sister I was giving up sweets. And one day, I'm in the kitchen at home, and I've got this big, refreshing glass of milk, and I've got three liters of chocolate syrup ready to go. And I am just squeezing that sucker. I mean, we're talking halfway up the glass full of chocolate. I don't want this to be a liquid by the time I'm done with it. This needs to be a candy bar. So I'm like kind of stern, and Christy walks in. She goes, you fake. That's a sweet. I'm like, this, Christy, Christy this, this, isn't, this isn't a sweet. She goes, no, that's, Danny, that's a sweet. I'm like, Christy, it's not a sweet. It's a sweet. I'm like, it's not a sweet. She's like, good. I was busted. I was found out. And then I, like, tried to make up excuses for it. Like, well, you see, Christy, I like to run, and so this is really like a recovery drink for me. Oh, please. Eat some bananas, right? So we try to cover it up, cover it up, cover it up. Because we don't like getting busted. We don't like getting found out. Oh, man, nobody likes having their records read, right? There's this verse in Psalm chapter 139, and it's powerful, but it's also, like, a little shaking. It says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. Yes, very powerful. What it's like to stand before God and say, I trust that you're going to love me. But, ooh, boy, say that to anybody else in the world. How would you feel if your parents could open your bank account and see ev I mean, everything, even the stuff you bought with cash, everything you've bought in the last month? 
We want to keep those records closed. Would anybody love me even then? I mean, seriously. There's an old theologian who said, if we could read minds, we would run away from every person we'd ever approach. And now, don't get me wrong, there are some things people shouldn't know about us, right? There's like a certain level of health to boundaries, and we should maintain those. But man, I think the big scary thing is, well, if my book is opened and everyone can read my records, would anyone love me even then? This question of hope goes a little bit deeper, doesn't it? See, it's not just about having hope in the even-then situations. It's about being loved in the even-then situations. I was in the locker room by myself. Was I really worried about, is, is there hope even now? What it really was, was, can anybody love me even now? I failed. I start to wonder, can anybody love me even then? If they found everything out. Psalm chapter 103 provides us some, uh, some powerful hope for that. It says this in verse 8. It says, The Lord is compassionate and merciful, slow to get angry, and filled with unfailing love. Now, if there is a thesis statement to the Bible, people will oftentimes point to John 3.16, which says, For God so loved the world that anyone who believes in him will not die, but have eternal life. But if there is a thesis statement to the Old Testament, the part of the Bible that's written before Jesus came, it would be this. This statement shows up over and over and over again throughout the Old Testament. I've quoted this, uh, this saying before at Kairos without quoting this specific verse. Because it's all over the Old Testament. The Lord is compassionate and merciful, slow to get angry, filled with unfailing love. Do you, do you believe that about God? When God wants to reveal to us God's character, this is what God says. I am compassionate, I am merciful, I'm slow to get angry, and I'm filled with unfailing love. And so even then, yes, I love you. Yes, I love you. Well, what about if I really got, like, crumbled down to pieces and everybody found out everything about me? What if I was completely uh, unraveled, just down into little bits of dust, and everybody saw me for what I really am worth, underneath the accomplishments that I don't even believe are real or authentic? What if you saw that and God says, yes, unfailing love? You're dust, but God loves dust. The passage continues in Psalm chapter 103. It goes on to say this in verse 14. For he knows how weak we are. He remembers we're only dust. In the verses that are in between that, here's some of the things that say. It says that, that the Bible says about God. He will not constantly accuse us nor remain angry forever. Do you know God's not mad at you? So many of us have terrible sights, about, have terrible opinions about ourselves, have terrible image of ourselves, because we have a bad image of God. If you believe that God is angry at you, that God is vengeful toward you, that God made you to hurt you, then of course you would believe that he made someone who's just nothing but a screw-up. But if you believe that God is compassionate and merciful and slow to anger, and full of unfailing love for you, it might just start to shift the way that you see yourself, too. It starts with God. 
Look at how gentle God is with the simplest of things in this world, even dust. It says that God treats us like a father treats their child. It says that he has removed our sins as far from us as the east as far from us as the east is from the west, like a father to his children, tender and compassionate to those who fear him. God sees your book. God's read your records. And even then, God loves you. Now, I know, like, a lot of times when we talk about this stuff, it's pretty metaphorical, right? Like, well, what if everyone found everything out about me? They, they probably won't. What if all my nightmares came true? They probably won't. Even then, though, God would still love you and God would still provide hope for you. But what about the people who, like, legitimately, their worst nightmares came true and their records were completely read and they've been judged for it? And in some cases, like, righteously judged. When I was... uh, starting to do visitations for the first time. I was doing visitations at a prison. And at this particular prison, it had a lot of different levels of security. And so we started in one place where you just kind of um, just visit with the people. You can sit across the table. And this particular day, it was Ash Wednesday. And so we'd, we'd, you know, we'd take the dust and we'd put it on people's foreheads. We'd say, remember, you are dust and to dust you will return. If you've grown up going to church on Ash Wednesday, maybe you know that that's a common tradition. I'll touch you on the forehead say, remember you are dust, and to dust you will return. And so we did that over and over again. Remember you are dust, and to dust you will return. Remember you are dust, and to dust you will return. And so many people ask, like, what, 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 what's, what's the point of this? Like, what, what's the purpose of Ash Wednesday? And when we think about dust, we think about, you know, how finite life is. So my automatic answer is just like, well... The truth is, is Ash Wednesday reminds us that we're finite, that we're dust, but God loves dust, and God brings life to dust. Isn't that great? And so someday, even though our bodies will run out, and someday, even though we'll go down to dust, there's hope and there's life. Isn't that great? Even then, isn't that great? And then we move to a different part in the prison. And this was, I don't know if it was like the top security, but it was definitely felt like very maximum security. So much that we weren't able to sit across a table from somebody. I mean, there's like inches of glass between us. These massive steel doors. And there's only one cell that I was assigned to go to and So I go to it, and I stand in front of it, and the officer bangs on the door. And uh, the person turns around and sees me. We we just lock eyes. I've never seen anything like this before. I think we locked eyes for like 10 seconds, just nothing said. I'm looking at this man and it hits me. They found out everything about you. They read your records.
And you didn't have to wait till the end of your life to know that you were dust, did you? You've already been told you're dust. And I know, to get to where he was, he must have done something very, very bad. But it was all found out. Even then? The guard um, opened up this little flap in the door where they just put um, food through. And so we both get down on our knees. And I asked him, I said, do you want some ashes? And he said, what are those for? And I, I, I couldn't tell this man, well, you're, you're finite. He already knew. I couldn't tell this man, you're a screw up. I couldn't tell this man, you're more messed up than you know. I don't know. I, I mean, seriously, I, I really tend to think that a lot of us are less messed up than we actually think. Because most of us seem to think that we're so broken and we're so messed up that we could never be fixed. And in those even then situations, we say, no, no. But you're not too messed up. You're not too messed up for God's grace. And so I couldn't tell him even then. But to him I say, even now. Now. God sees you. And God loves you. You ever looked at ash up close? I wish it wasn't a pandemic because then we'd have everybody come down and we'd be able to do this and put the cross on your forehead, but we won't be able to tonight. But man, it's so easy just to like lose a little speck of it, right? You got a God who keeps track of every single one. You got a God who loves dust. He knows how weak we are, and he remembers we're only dust. Imposter syndrome is unnecessary in the presence of God. He already knows. And this is the God who tells you in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. He says, For we know we are God's masterpiece. What did you say to yourself when you looked in the mirror this morning? What was the first thing that you noticed? Did you notice the good things about you, or did you try to start fixing stuff? And what about the mirror that faces your soul, that faces your heart? Do you believe you're a masterpiece, or do you immediately go to the things that you have to fix and change just to continue to put up a front? 
But God created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things that he planned for us long ago. Before you ever put up the front, God already planned good things for you. You are different. You are unique. But you are not an imposter. You are an original masterpiece of the creator of the universe. God didn't create you to perform. God didn't create you to make himself look better. God created you to love you. God created you to care for you. Even now. Even now. Sometimes we think that the promise is so far away. In Isaiah chapter 61, there's a prophecy that talks about a promise that's far away. It says, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me, the prophet says, for the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. Someday there's going to be good news for the poor. He sent me to comfort the brokenhearted, to proclaim that the captives will be released and prisoners will be freed. He has sent me to tell those who mourn that in the time of the Lord's favor, that has come. He will give a crown of beauty for what? He will give a crown of beauty for ashes. You look in the mirror and you believe that you're dust. You look in the mirror and you believe that you're ashes. And you know what the scary thing is? Yeah, it's true. But the beautiful thing is God says, I've got a crown of royalty for you. Give me your ashes. Give me your dust. Let me turn it into royalty. You are an original masterpiece. And you know this is true because this is not a promise that's far away. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus walks into a temple. And he opens a scroll. And he reads from Isaiah chapter 61. And he says, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me. For the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. If that sounds familiar, it's because it was on the screen right before in Isaiah chapter 61. Jesus is saying, Now. Now is the time. You are loved now. You are valued now. You are appreciated even now. You don't have to worry about the even then. Even then, yes, of course you'll have hope. Even then, yes, of course you'll be loved. Because even now, you're loved. Maybe we think that, you know, Jesus says those things and people are astounded and blown away and very happy, right? But it actually says that they're furious with him. They try to chase him off of a hill. No, you can't say that. Boy, there's something that kind of hurts. There's something that kind of pokes and provokes when someone tells us you're awesome when we don't believe it. Something that kind of hurts when someone says there's hope for you when we believe we're backed into a corner that has no escape. And what does Jesus do? Does he get mad at them? Does he say, all right, fine, forget you. No, it's kind of cool. The text says that Jesus simply moved his way through the crowd and went along on his way. They tried to mess up God, right? They tried to screw him up. No, you you can't. You can't mess up God. You can't screw God up. You, You can't mess up what God says is good. Because even if you got it to a place where people would say that's bad, God can say, I'll reconcile it. Give me, the, give me the ashes. I'll turn it into beauty. Jesus is sitting at a table with his disciples the night before he's going to die. And 
He's sitting in a table with people who are going to betray him, people who are going to deny him, people that are going to run away from his execution. I mean, man, could God love people even then? But in order for God to be God, God has to stay consistent. And so he keeps his promise. And his promise is to be a trustworthy anchor for your soul. Committed to you. Tethered to you. And when it goes somewhere new, you get to go with. God is God. God is consistent. So the promise is true for you. Something in your way from seeing that right now? You got a note card tonight, and I invite everybody to take out your note card. And I just want you to reflect for a moment. You know, in the Bible, there's two words for sin. In the Old Testament, it's kata, and in the New Testament, it's hamartia. And you might think, oh, okay, so are those words that mean like lists of don'ts? The words literally mean to miss. Maybe you always thought that sin was a list of things that you can't do. Things that would get in the way of you and God. Sin literally means to miss. And so the state of the world that we're in, the brokenness, the sin of the world is that we're missing God. We're making other things our God. So then not only are we missing God, but we're missing life. So I want to invite you just to take a moment. Just write down, what is it on this, write on this card, what is it the thing in your life that's making you miss God? I want you to hold on to that. And on your way out tonight, there's going to be paper shredders. And since we can't actually physically burn things in this public space, we're going to shred it down to get it close to dust. And then we will literally burn these papers. It'll be totally private. But the cool thing is, is yes, we are dust, but so is everything else. It's dust. But God breathes life, breathes life into dust. God doesn't breathe bad stuff into dust. And so when we say we are dust and to dust we will return, so are the things that keep us from God. So are the things that make us miss God. So are the things that make us miss out on life. We are dust and to dust we will return. So are the things that hurt you. There is hope for you. That will never go away. It's not something you can produce. It's something that's given to you. And it's something that's committed to you. And it's something that's tethered to you. And so Jesus says he's sitting at that table with his disciples. And we might say, God, even then would you love them? God, Jesus says this. He says, he lifts up a cup on the next slide. He lifts up a cup and he says, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people. An agreement confirmed with, with what? With, oh, no, no, it's not you. It's not your behavior. It's not your performance. It's not your ability This covenant between God and people, this promise between God and people is confirmed with Jesus' blood. And it's poured out as a sacrifice for us. 
And so in Isaiah chapter 54, we have this promise that says, for the mountains may move and the hills disappear. Yes, even those are dust. But even then, my faithful love for you will remain. Even then. Even now. So right now, we're going to take an opportunity. Hopefully you got a little cup on your way in. It's for communion. Um, Communion is a moment in which we receive Jesus. Jesus is sitting at the table with his disciples and he took a piece of bread, he gave thanks and he broke it and he gave them to eat and he said, take and eat. This is my body and it's given for you. When you do this, do it in remembrance of me. Then again, after supper, he took the cup. You just heard this one. He said, this cup is the new covenant. It's my blood and it's shed for you and for the forgiveness of all sins. When you drink this, do it in remembrance of me. Not in remembrance of your own abilities, not in remembrance of the image that you try to portray, in remembrance of Jesus Christ. Jesus taught us some words to pray. We're going to pray them now. They'll be on the screen behind me. Feel free to join. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. If you haven't already, go ahead and eat the blood and hear this. This is the body of Christ given for you. And then with the small cup, you can take it and hear this. This is the blood of Christ shed for you. Thanks be to God. Let's stand up. Let's sing. Let's worship this God who brings beauty out of ashes, who turns graves into gardens. Amen.